probably the hardest part was when I first got diagnosed that bowel cancer for that second time, actually getting in that car and calling up my dad, my mum, my brother and my sister first and just calling them up and breaking the news to them. I just tried to my best to hold the tears off, but actually saying it out loud to your family, like to your dad, to your mum, you know, to my twin brother, you know, yeah, bloody bastard of a thing. I've, I've got bowel cancer. Hello and welcome to the 25 Stay Alive podcast, an inspiring, real and raw conversation with Hugo and Willie, two army mates and cancer survivors who are passionate in helping the lives of other young men and women. Hello and welcome everybody to the second installment of the 25 Stay Alive podcast with myself, Matt Willie-Williams. And Mr. Hugo Tuvi. Hugo, mate, how are you today? Good, thanks, Willie. As always, it's awesome to be here and uh, loving chatting to you, mate. And I'm really looking forward to chatting to you. You know, someone I, I look up to and someone who's, you know, beating the disease I'm fighting at the moment, beating it not once, but he's beaten it twice. And that's just incredible, mate. It has been a, I guess, interesting ride for me, unfortunately, but we'll we'll talk about that shortly. But it's uh, it was great talking to you and hearing about your story last week. And, and for those listening who didn't catch it, it's all all in our uh, podcast there. So definitely give that a listen because it was uh, one of the most inspiring interviews or stories that I've definitely uh, been a part of. Just to touch on with my one before, I'm currently undergoing treatment and, you know, similarly to to what Hugo's been through, but, you know, Hugo's really smashed cancer. And although you might've thought it was a hard fight, at least you're not the cancer you had because that, that's been gone and dead now. Yeah, hopefully I'm definitely on the home stretch and, and I know how strong you are and Willie is undergoing his 10th round of chemotherapy, which is just bloody unreal. And all the positive bloody energy to you, mate, for a hopefully a, as, good, as good a week as it can be for you, mate. Now, before we get stuck into the whole sort of cancer sort of talk and what you've already smashed out, see that you're born and raised in what I'd say is the best city in Australia being Adelaide. Easy, the best city, mate. Adelaide, born and raised, and it is my hometown. And I'll always call Adelaide home. And yes, I was born and raised there and did my schooling there. And and it wasn't until about year 11, uh, so I was a bit late. Unlike you, I didn't have sort of army running through my blood growing up, but I, I did sort of in year sort of 11 work out that it would be something I was quite interested in. And and then finished school, similar to you as well, straight from school, joined the army down the, uh, the officer stream. Those listening, Willie went down the stream as a soldier, which is Kapuka, which he mentioned uh, in his last episode, and I went down the officer stream and, and went down ADFA, which is the Australian Defence Force Academy, which I actually really loved my time there. And it was that perfect transition for someone like me who didn't want to get chucked straight into the deep end. And it had that mixture of university study, and I studied a Bachelor of Business, but also a bit of army training in those three years as well. Yeah, so you were at ADFA from 2010 until 2013-ish? Yeah, so yeah, graduated in 2012 and then commenced RMC, Royal Military College, Duntroon in, in yeah, 2013 for, for my final 12 months of army training. Yeah, and you would have been 21 at the time. So you see, you're still a young fella a very in a very sort of grown-up world, I'll say, at, at RMC, an incredibly challenging time. Yes, no, definitely, mate. No, I've, I've never been the fittest guy in the world uh, but I've always had that mentality of always wanting to finish something and and I all through ADFA and RMC I had that same mentality and it was definitely a full-on 12 months at Duntroon and yeah I was only 21 but it was some of the 
hardest times of my, my life, but also definitely some of the most rewarding times. Oh, for sure. And, and although I haven't done RMC, I can relate to that. Sort of not being the fittest guy in the world, but, you know, being you're mentally tough and, you know, the, the want to finish something and you can pretty much get through in life and, and especially in defence. Exactly right. And the, the best part about Duntroon is that it's something that every officer has to go through. So you all share that, that similar I guess, training. It doesn't matter if you want to be special forces or if you want to be an infantry officer or if you want to be a signaler or if you want to go down the logistics path, which I did. Everyone does that same unified training for either 12 months or 18 months at Duntroon, which I I think is quite special. And something I'll sort of touch on here is I think a lot of people who aren't sort of defence have a bit of a a bit of a thing that everyone is sort of a frontline combat soldier like myself. But you need to understand that's only a tiny percentage of defence and that there's a whole sort of logistic behind that, which, which you guys part of. And although I might be out in the middle of Afghan or out in the middle of fi- in the field somewhere, I still need to get fed and, you know, bullets to me and everything. So I chose the logistic stream. Uh, when I say I chose that, you, just before you graduate, you, you choose what stream you want to go down. And I have always been very interested in business and that's what I studied at, at uni or at ADFA. And I went down that logistic stream, which was which was more specifically called RAOC, which is Ordnance Corps. And for those listening who aren't army, Army-centric, army it's basically, Willie kind of summarised it well. Picture, you know, Willie over in Afghanistan, crew commander. It's all about coordinating that those who are on the front line or those who are conducting those offensive operations, they get their fuel, they get their water, they get their food, they get all their, their support, I suppose, for the operations. Yeah, and it's sort of the behind-the-scenes work that you actually don't see that goes into, you know, some of the guys, and I'll say sort of like myself and the infantry and the combat corps, get a sort of a lot of the glory. But without the guys behind the scenes, nothing would be happening at all. And RMC, although I've never done it, I can only really imagine how challenging and how hard it is. But you had another big battle come up for you while you were there. I did, mate, unfortunately. And RMC, up to that point, was definitely the hardest, I suppose, part of my, my life that, that thus far, I suppose, as far as the mental and physical component goes of the training. And it wasn't until June 18th, and I know that day very well. So June 18th, 2013, so I was only 21 at the time. And I had six months left of before I graduated as a, a young lieutenant in the Australian Army. And I remember calling my dad up and and just wishing him happy birthday because that, that's his birthday, June 18th. And on a completely unrelated side. And I said to him, look, Dad, I've got this weird little uh, lump in my right testicle that I've, I've been putting off for a while. And then it kind of went from there. Sort of touch on that. I'm, I'm really glad, you know, that you're comfortable enough to, you know, and speak to your father or speak to a GP about that, as there is a bit of a stigma around, especially, you know, your testicles and genitals of people in general and sort of and talking about issues. And sort of what did you, and what did your father come back with? Well, it's, he kind of just said, look, mate, you probably just go get it checked out. Like, what's the big deal? And looking back mm. on it, I don't know. Like, I kind of go, shit, what is the big deal? And that's what I'm so passionate about. And I'm so strong in getting young men, especially, to just change that stigma to there's no shame in seeking help. And, and for sure, with the lads and the lads listening here, you know, we've all got balls. It's not, a, it's not a rare thing to have. So, you know, get checked. Don't be... You know, don't be stupid. It's, it's something, if there's something wrong, then there's something wrong. You need to go get checked up. Now, when did you seek professional advice after sort of realizing that something is wrong? So that day, I basically said, actually, yeah, I'm a bloody idiot. What am I doing? Like, 
this is my health I'm playing with. Shit, how hard is it? And I wandered across to the army GP and, and just awkwardly told him and he dropped down my ducks and had a little feel around, which, which they do with things like that. And basically said, look, mate, it's probably nothing, but we'll send off, send you off for an ultrasound, you know, straight away, just, just to make sure. And basically that's, that's what happened. I went off for an ultrasound and I kind of knew something wasn't necessarily right. And I think you touched on this offline when, or in your previous episode, when you kind of know from the reaction from, from the person giving the scan or the ultrasound that they're not medically allowed to tell you what's wrong, but you can kind of just gauge from their facial expressions that something probably isn't up. And I'll just sort of touch on something as well. I know for you, me, or anyone, a doctor, you know, having a feel around your testicle might be uncomfortable, but you've got to remember that doc- doctors do that every single day and they have their best intentions is to, to make sure that you're healthy. They, they don't find it uncomfortable at, at all. Um, it's just sort of your own, your own mind who does that. And that's why the stigma needs to change. Now, yeah. you said that the nurse, was it doing the ultrasound, had a bit of a, a reaction. I had very similar to that. And at that point, were you, were you scared of what was happening or moving on? I think I more just didn't want to accept the potential reality of what it could have been. Everyone knows Dr. Google all too well and basically can tell you you've got two hours to live some, sometimes if you're, if you're searching, searching for these things. So I kind of just didn't really want to accept it. And I kind of tried to went, went on with my, my day. And, and it wasn't until I got that call back from the Army GP within a couple of hours kind of saying, look, mate, he didn't say anything on the phone. All he said was, I've got your appointment with a urologist this afternoon or that afternoon uh, to go through the results. And when you get a call from a specialist or, or to see a specialist that day, something's probably not right. Just excuse my sort of lack of knowing here. I know with my tumour, the doctor, he thought he knew what it was. He, and he gave me what well, ended up being the correct terms. But with the scan you got, could they tell you on the spot that it's cancerous or was it just a sort of a, a black spot on it? I had to go and get a biopsy and, and then that had to get sent away and checked. But I'm just wondering if it's the same sort of thing with, with your cancer. It, it is similar in the fact, mate, that they actually can't tell. And there are cases of people having this type of, of having testicular cancer and having their testicle removed, but not actually being t- testicular cancer. But that's very rare. So generally speaking, the urologist basically said to me when I walked in there, mate, you've got testicular cancer because he was that mm. confident based off the, uh, the ultrasound and where it was located. But he said, look, to be 100% sure and to confirm, we have to have to do a biopsy. And to do a biopsy, they have to, they have to remove your, your whole testicle. I was kind of a bit confronted when he out of nowhere said, mate, not only do you have testicular cancer at 21, but we're also going to rip out one of your testicles as well. And just before we touch on that too much, how long did you have this lump on your testicles before really getting it checked or bringing up or raising concern with your dad? And why didn't you get that checked or bring it up with someone earlier? Look, looking back on it, man, I think I was, it, it, honestly, it could have been anywhere from six months. And I look back on that now and, and go, you know, that would have caused a lot less bloody heartache and, and a lot easier journey if I'd just bloody gone to the doctor when I noticed it. But I think to answer your question, I think I was just like most naive 21 year olds, to be honest. I think I, you think you're invincible. You, you don't think anything of it. You kind of go, what's this little lump down here? Oh, it's just going to go away by itself. And you don't ever think something like that to that extreme can affect you at such a young age. And obviously you and I know all too well, that's, that's obviously not, not true. And I think that's what I'm really strong in, in pushing is that, you know, all the guys and the girls out there is that just because you're 21 or you're 20 or you're 18 or you're 23 or whatever, you're not invincible. 
Oh, no, not at all. And to sort of move forward a little bit now, for, so you had that scan and then, then the doctor told you what he thought it was. What's the time frame between that and then actually having the surgery? I know mine was you know a matter of probably a couple of months. Was yours sort of that time or, or a lot sooner? No, mate, it's, it's, with testicular cancer, it, uh, it's highly treatable if caught early, but it can be out of very aggressive type and it can be very aggressive and it can spread. Typically, testicular cancer spreads upwards. And those mm. familiar with Lance Armstrong, he put it off, put it off, put it off, put it off to the point that it literally spread upwards to his brain and he had many tumours in his brain from originating in testicular cancer. And I'll touch on that in a second on where mine spread to. But basically within two days, my dad flew over from Adelaide and, and I had the surgery in Canberra to, to remove the, the testicle. And on that side note, I did choose to have a fake testicle, a prosthetic, which I found quite amusing when I was in the doctor's rooms. And how was your sort of mental health and how did you deal with that in, that in that couple of days, mate? Honestly, not too bad in the fact that, I don't know, I think it's because I thought or I, I was just so confident that everything would be fine. And like I said, in most testicular cancer cases, surgery alone to remove that testicle generally is the only treatment you need. So I kind of did a bit of research and, and spoke to a lot of people and they, they were pretty confident that, you know what, mate? We're confident that hopefully this surgery to remove the testicle is the only treatment you need. So I put in a fake nut and, and I kind of was my new party trick going forward, which, which, which it still is. We, we'll talk about that offline if you want, mate. But um, <laughs> I kind of moved on with my life and I, I didn't really think anything of it. And I, I didn't at that stage, I was kind of like, shit, wasn't that a, a big wake up call? And wasn't that a huge shock in my life? But, you know, I didn't, didn't th- I felt like I got, you know, I got on top of it and that was, that was the last of it. Now, you said that you had the surgery and then you didn't think there was going to be any more treatment after that. Did you go through you know, chemotherapy, radiotherapy and the such? Yeah. So unfortunately, this is when I'm so strong about early detection because I went on with my daily life, a bit of recovery from the, the surgery, removed the testicle, but life went on and I had a follow-up CT scan in uh, two months after that. So it would have been a would have been about in August and I had this CT scan just to, just to make sure that there wasn't any more cancer and I didn't think much of it and had this scan and Unfortunately, that's when when everything kind of hit home that, you know, bugger, I bloody didn't get it. And it had spread basically, like I explained before, it spreads upwards. The CT scan showed that my majority of my abdominal lymph nodes were all had uh, cancerous cells in them and it had spread all through my abdominal region. And I'm sure that's a, a massive kick in the guts for you. And, and how, did, how did you sort of feel mentally and emotionally from, from that thinking, you know, you're, pretty, you're an optimistic bloke thinking, oh, fuck it, I've already beaten, you know, testicular cancer. And then you've, you've got this, that there's something else there. Yeah. And that, that was one of the, that was such a difficult part to think. I knew then that it was serious because anytime cancer spreads, you know, that it's a whole different kettle of fish than when you just get in, get it early. And and that's uh, when he basically said, look, your treatment options are made, uh, you need to have some chemotherapy. At this stage, I was 21 and I only had literally a, f- a couple months left to graduate after four years of arduous army training as an officer in the army and to be told that, you know, mate, you got to commence chemo. So I basically put chemo off for two months, which they said not, they wouldn't, it didn't affect anything. So what it meant is I could graduate with all my, my class of, of 2013 and, and graduate as a a lieutenant in the in the army and my parents flew from Adelaide and and watched me graduate and it was, it was a hugely proud moment in my life but it was it was a bittersweet feeling because on one hand I was about to graduate oh I just had graduated as a, a lieutenant in the Australian army but on the other hand when all my mates are going around Australia to continue their 
their long army careers, I was about to endure intensive chemotherapy and I did undertake that as little as six days after I graduated as a lieutenant. Generally handled the effects of chemo okay, but it still really hit me for six and I lost all my hair and and lost a lot of weight and and I was very pale and sick and it was pretty difficult because I'd look at myself in the mirror and it was just this bloody, you know, pale, bald, bloody cancer guy and he was 21 and and it was uh, 22 at that stage and it was pretty difficult, but I then had an extra round because of some complications with with one of the chemo drugs. But overall, it was about four months. I guess I had to have a follow-up CT scan to see if the chemo had done its job. And had the chemo done its job or did you then require another surgery to get rid of those those lymph nodes? I had the scan and I was pretty positive and hoping the bloody chemo had done its job and had the CT scan and it had showed there was still some some signs of cancer in the abdominal region which is very uncommon, but it can happen. And I just fell into that unfortunate minority. And I then had to have what was called a retroponero lymph node dissection, which to put it in simple terms, it was an eight-hour operation to basically remove all my abdominal lymph nodes in my stomach. And it's a pretty invasive operation. And to put in perspective, the surgeon had only done one of those, those operations in the previous two years. So it's not something they do all the time. And so was that classified in remission after you had that, after that surgery? Yeah. So basically once I had the surgery and I, and I recovered from all of that, then you had the follow-up CT scan, which finally did show that, you know, after all the chemo, the surgery, the initial surgery to remove the testicle, I was finally in remission, which was awesome. And from then it was, it was literally like a get yourself back on, on your feet and recover and all this type of stuff. And then it was basically six month scans for the next sort of five years. And that yeah. was kind of my life. And, and we touched on how supportive and how one big family the army is. And to this day, I, I couldn't be more supportive of the fact that through this whole time, they kind of just said, mate, you take the time you need, you recover and they look after your family and myself. And it was just amazing. And and I had basically the next two years or year and a bit to, to really just recover from those major operations and the adverse side effects from chemotherapy. And to sort of touch on your point there, and I'm, I'm going through my cancer treatment at the moment, the army being, you know, one big family has changed a lot of perspectives I had about the army and the medical system that it, it does really work and it's fantastic. And people that, you know, are commanders and bosses of me to really, you know, sort of remove that rank slide for, for the time with me and, you know, really help me and support me. And not only me and myself, but my family through, you know, incredibly hard times. So, and then you, you got back, you got medically upgraded, you're in, you're in working and then, you know, massive congratulations. You got promoted to being a captain in the ADF, which is no small feat for anyone, especially someone who's just said sort of fuck cancer to testicular cancer. Absolutely, mate. It was very much a, you know, the fuck cancer and, and got through the next couple of years and then got a posting and then, yeah, basically the end of 2017, it was a very, very proud moment in my life. And I, I got promoted to, to captain, which after what I'd been through, it was one of those huge achievements, regardless of going through that, but especially going through all of that and knowing all the hard yards I had to put in to really recover to to be promoted. And it was it was a huge achievement. And then I got posted to, to Brisbane at the, the start of last year, the start of 2018, to continue my army career. And, and sort of knowing your story a bit more, just, sort of just after that, in June, you had five yearly CT scan. So that was my five yearly scan for testicular cancer. And for a lot of those cancer survivors listening or having had family go through cancer, when you hit that five-year milestone of being in complete remission, it's a huge milestone because basically it means that, okay, statistics will say that you are 
or very, very, very unlikely to have a relapse in this cancer and you're officially in complete remission. So I remember having a cheers to my partner, Amber, and calling my parents, my family, which it's a proud moment. And after what I'd been through and living in Brisbane and really doing well at work, it was probably the happiest I'd been for a long time. And I was just ready to just excel and move on. And, you know, life had the whole army career my whole life in front of me. But Mm. uh, unfortunately, when my story uh, takes a bit of an unexpected turn is, is that feeling I had only lasted for, for about two months until I, until I got some bad news. Yeah, so do you want to touch on sort of what happened next with some sort of bowel issues and some discomfort you had? Yeah, so I've, I've always had a bit of discomfort in my bowel, but it's always just been mild. It's, it's been a bit of sort of mild oxidative colitis or a bit of bowel disease, but it's, it's been nothing that's ever impacted my daily life. And because of that, though, I have a colonoscopy every two to three years and it just so happened to be I, I was due for a colonoscopy later on in 2018. But before that colonoscopy, I started just getting a bit of discomfort more more than usual. And it just, I suppose, the silver lining in this is what I had learned from my testicular cancer and not putting off buddy, old mate, stupid, young 21-year-old Hugo with a, a lump on his testicle. I thought, no, I'm getting on top of this. So I went straight off to my, my gastroenterologist and said, I've got these symptoms can I go off for a colonoscopy? And he kind of said, look, mate, you're not due for, for another couple of months. And I said, look, I'd, I'd really like to have one now. And look, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just me trusting my gut, no pun intended, but it was <laughs> lucky I did trust my gut because it uh, basically saved my life. It surely did, mate. I'm really glad though you pronounced gastroenterologist in that. I was looking at how it's written. I'm like, oh God, I don't know. I don't know if I can, <laughs> um, I don't know if I can pronounce that one. And then, you know, he did that, that colonoscopy. And what did they find from there? Unfortunately, I got that all too familiar call from the doctor's room again, only a couple of days after, basically saying, hey, mate, you are the reception and the doctor, a gastroenterologist, wants to see you that afternoon to go through the results. And I straight away, my whole, I just had this sinking feeling of going, fuck's sake, like what, what is it this time? And I then went back on Dr. Google and of course it told me the worst and I had two hours to live again. But ultimately I thought, fucking hell, what is this? And, and told my partner and, and then we went to the appointment together that afternoon. And to sort of touch on something there too, anyone who has sort of a problem that they're sort of wondering about, don't go to Google, <laughs> go to an actual doctor and yes. ask because it will just tell you a complete wrong thing. It'll freak you out and you know, nine times out of 10, it'll be a lot better than it actually is. So you went along to this disappointment with your lovely partner and sort of how, how did she take it at the time? Well, we both, we discussed it afterwards looking back on it and we both tried to put on this big brave face and, and I remember I was kind of joking around in the, the waiting room reading buddy new idea or whatever I was reading. <laughs> but you could just tell we both have that bit of awkwardness to us and I felt sick, uh, like physically sick because I just kind of was so apprehensive what was going to come and then... I thought she was handling it quite well, but then she later told me she was completely the same. She felt physically physically sick as well. So we kind of both were trying to make each other happy, but really we were both quite worried about what the, uh, the doctor was going to say. Oh, mate, for sure. I'd, I'd like to say that I can't relate, um, but, but sadly I can relate uh, all too well to that sort of feeling. So you get in and you see uh, the doctor. Was he a, a surgeon or just a GP at the time? So this was my gastroenterologist. And I, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, basically, like we walked in and I could tell straight away his face. I'm like, ah, oh, shit, this isn't good. And walked in and sat down next to next to Amber and 
it was kind of deja vu from five years ago with my testicular cancer. But this time he turned the screen around and said, mate, the biopsy came back from the colonoscopy we took and you've got bowel cancer. So it was... Uh, oh, you bloody poor, you poor bastard. <laughs> no, I know. It was, it was, it literally was a, like a punch in the guts. And it was kind of like, I remember sitting there going, are you fucking serious? Excuse my French, but I literally, I think I even may have said that. It was kind of like... <laughs> seriously and I'd, I even said to him I said are you sure you've you've got the right person I said I've just had a clear CT scan for testicular cancer I'm I was cancer free and then he kind of said look mate I'm I'm sorry and and I had so many questions and this that and the other and I'm kind of like all right let's do this let's zap it with some radiation you know let's let's smash this with a round of chemo like you know let's do this doc and I was kind of almost pumped up to really just smash this out but then he kind of said yeah. look mate unfortunately you the only option is to to have your bow removed and and when he said that i was like what <laughs> god yeah and the sort of implications that 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 causes in a major surgery yeah exactly and that was that's what i was so so scared about as soon as he said that and he started talking about colostomy bags or stomas you know i was only 26 and i was just like shit i don't want to live the rest of my life with a bloody poo bag on me and i know a lot of people out there that live normal lives with it that's fine but at that point in time i was just so anxious about it and basically we just we discussed what surgery we would have and he he referred me to a colorectal surgeon i think mm. the next day and it was eventually decided that we had or i had a, a subtotal colectomy which is what it's called which is where they or where he went in and he removed about 90 percent of my colon and for those listening the colon or large bowel it's all the same thing so he removed about 90 percent of of my bowel and However, bloody surgeons do what they do. It's ridiculous to me, but they, he, in fact, essentially stapled my small bowel to my large bowel, what remained of it, and then to the rectum. And, and you essentially, you know, you, you can live a relatively normal life from that. So that was the, the, the treatment option I, I had. So they removed that, you know, the 90% of your colon. Did you then go under any chemo or radio from there? Or was that, you know, sort of the, oh, I don't want to say the all clear, but that, and was that the treatment for that? So that was the, the big the hopeful part that, that I did catch it early. And that is why I urge people listening to this, that early detection can literally save your life. And what I had learned from my testicular cancer, it did save my life. And he removed the colon and it was all pretty good. And I'll just quickly on this side note, because it was a pretty another bloody journey that I had to face. But as I was recovering and he took out my catheter and my nasal gastric tube and I was sitting on the bloody chair eating a turkey sandwich and I'm like, this is great. Yeah, I was about I'm to young. ask about the turkey. No, it was a good, good turkey singer actually. They always are in hospital. And it was a funny one though, because I, st- I was feeling so good. And this was after three days after this major operation. And I'm like, this is great. And the doctor's like, oh, look at this guy's recovering well. And anyway, I started going downhill at a very rapid rate. And it was, I had a bit of pain in, in my, my short life, but gee, this was the most excruciating pain I have ever had. And and I remember it, uh, they were literally injecting morphine straight into my, my stomach and I couldn't feel any relief from, from the pain and it was excruciating. And they eventually called the buddy code blue button or whatever the buddy nurse's emergency button in and everyone got around and this was a Saturday and they're like, shit, this guy's going downhill quick. And anyway, set me off for a scan and and it was all pretty full on. And I was so like seduced from all the medication. I didn't really know what was happening. And anyway, my surgeon rushed, rushed in from, had his day off. And he 
saw the results from the CT scan. He said, we're going to get this guy for surgery straight away, emergency surgery. And they bloody had to shove the catheter back in and shove the nasal gastric tube back down like whilst I was still awake. And I remember being in so much pain that my dad had to sign the waiver form for, for the surgery. And on that form, it had that there was a possibility that, you know, I might not wake up from this surgery because it was such a, a full-on emergency operation. And anyway, what actually happened is because I've been opened up about six times now through my abdominal region, there was so much scar tissue. It was like a spider web. So the remaining bowel twisted or, or somehow so badly kinked around each other that it completely was, was blocking up my entire bowel. And it was the surgeon later said that if I'd waited even one hour, one hour we're talking, which were probably the length of this podcast, he said if I'd waited one hour, not only would have I had my whole bowel removed, but he said it would probably would have been fatal, which shit, when you hear that, it's pretty full on. And he, he did say it was one of the worst ones he had seen in 15 years. And and I found it mildly amusing. The the head nurse there who was fantastic, she later said to to myself, she said, I've been working here for 20 years and this moment or this whole emergency procedure made my top three most memorable <laughs> moments. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, like, it's not exactly a list you want to make, but I thought, you know, I made it anyway, so I can tick that off my list. And basically, I, uh, yeah, from there, spent the next three weeks in uh, probably the darkest days of my life recovering from this second operation in hospital. It was a tough time, I tell you that, but it was, yeah. Yeah, well, I think put me off turkey sangers for a while. So, and then that bowel cancer, you know, you've moved, you know, on through that. I just sort of want to touch on it. As you said, you know, you're in quite a dark place. You'd lost a lot of weight. You'd been through, you know, you've beat one cancer once and then another one to come back. Can you just sort of go forward for me of sort of how you dealt with after that, how sort of how you struggled with the mental side of it and the emotional part? Looking back on it, it took me some time to really admit that I was... I definitely was depressed, especially being in hospital because there was just no improvement. I was losing so much weight. I, I physically couldn't drink or eat for a few weeks. I just had to wait for my stomach to wake up. And every day the doctor would come in and it would be the same, same news, you know, see you tomorrow, see you tomorrow. And, you know, my family would come visit me and Amber would be there by my side every day. And she'd be trying to help me put my, set my laptop up and just Really, uh, I, I kind of felt at the time I just put on this brave face because I just didn't want to seem vulnerable in front of my family because I just felt like I needed to be strong because then otherwise, how are they going to go? And it wasn't until kind of Amber would leave at night, say nine o'clock each night, and she would kiss me goodbye. And I'd go, all right, bye, I'm pretending I'm watching a movie. And I then really, like most nights, I would then just like, I'd burst into tears really. And I just kind of feel so alone and, and so vulnerable because it was just a time in my life where I just thought going to this again for a second time, like not knowing the, the future or the outcome from it either. And it was just such a down time for me. And, and I remember speaking to Amber after about all this when I, when I opened up about it and she said, you know, she would leave and then she would, you know, cry on, on the car on the way home. And, and it was just that whole wanting to really help me. And then she was obviously so down, which brought me down with it. And it was just that whole experience and looking back on it, it's, it was just such a tough time that I generally just felt like I had nothing to look forward to at the time. And I was just so yeah, down yeah. in the dump. So it was a pretty dangerous place to get, you know, be in that, that place. Oh, mate, I've been there as well. And I've, I've got shivers sitting here, you know, of myself sort of thinking back to times and I've, I've been very similar. And I, I guess I, used to, I get when I went through and I was, I was definitely depressed as well. 
it's so hard on your families and, and Amber, although I don't personally know, it just sounds absolutely amazing, you know, to be there every night and, you know, be strong for you. But then it's incredible that you can actually open up and sort of show, you know, vulnerability of how sort of depressed and sad you were. And that is, you know, something I really admire and that is a massive strength to be able to sort of, you know, openly come out that, yeah, I was depressed and then, and then that moved on from there. And, and how did the rest of your extended family sort of handle it? And I'll sort of expand on that question of, I know my extended family to my face, <laughs> you know, happy and optimistic and everything. And then I sort of get sometimes a little bit of behind the scenes view and they're not sort of all right sometimes. Did you experience any of that? I think, mate, spot on. I think it was exactly that. Look, my family's so supportive. My mum, my dad, my twin brother, my sister and, and all my extended family and and all Amber's Amber's family and stuff, which is fantastic. I'm so lucky to have such a support supportive family. But it was difficult. Probably the hardest part was when I first got diagnosed that bowel cancer for that second time, actually getting in that car and calling up my dad, my mum, my brother and my sister first and just calling them up and breaking the news to them. I just tried to my best to hold the tears off, but actually saying it out loud to your family, like to your dad, to your mum, you know, to my twin brother, you know, yeah, bloody bastard of a thing. I've, I've got bowel cancer and you, you kind, you try and kind of play it down a bit, but then you kind of just, you feel almost there kind of holding off tears and you, you know, they're trying to be strong for you and then you're trying to be strong for them. But you know, I've got no doubt as soon as that phone calls hung, you hang up from the phone, you know, I then would burst into tears and no doubt they would, would show some emotions. So it's very much of that putting on that brave face, but it is very difficult. And it's probably one of the most difficult things is breaking those types of that news to, to your family and your friends. And no doubt you would have experienced something similar, mate, when you have to tell or, you know, your close, the people close to you that, you know, you've got a form of incurable brain cancer. Like it's, it's fucking difficult. Oh, mate, and, and I guess I get, and you, you, I guess you'd feel the same, a fair bit of sort of a selfishness feel that you're like, fuck, everyone's here for me, everyone's creating around me, mm. you know, I'm the one causing the pain for my family and my friends, my lo- all my loved ones, you know, I'm the one putting them in this much pain, blah, 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 and I get a bit depressed about that, and I'm sure you'd, you'd feel the same, and we'll, we'll expand in further podcasts about, you know, dealing with the mental health side of, um, I just want to sort of ask now, you know, here and now, as today, how is your health? So it's not not too bad, mate. It, so it's, it's only really been what what are we now? Sort of February, and I had that got discharged from hospital in, in September. So, but overall, it's pretty. I'm in a pretty good way mentally, which is good. Uh, you still have your ups and down days, but overall, my mental side's shit ton better than it was, which is great because you really learn a lot about yourself. And I think being open and sharing a story like you you've already recently touched on, mate. It, it is good mental healing, and I've definitely found that. As far as my physical health, though, it's, it is an ongoing battle. I'm, I'm going to say that because I didn't have my whole bowel removed, which meant I avoided the, the colostomy bag. And But what it does mean is that I, I will require sort of six monthly colonoscopies for the rest of my life. And I still have a bit of inflammation in my remaining bowel, which means I've got to keep changing up medications and changing up my diet and really trying to get on top of that because I guess untreated inflammation is what's going to cause the cancer to reoccur. So that's why it's a... I do live with a bit of that anxiety to know that for the rest of my life, I do have to continually have that surveillance, but it's, I don't regret my decision at all. And each day that goes by, I'm finding more about the different foods I can eat. And we'll touch on in different podcasts and about how important diet is to your gut and how important gut health is. But 
ultimately, as I sit here right here right now talking to you, mate, I'm in a pretty good pretty good way and I, I definitely can't complain seeing where I, I was, I suppose, previously to where I am now and really enjoying uh, work and, and really enjoying kind of, you know, talking to you and doing these podcasts and it's kind of really, really good for my own recovery, I suppose, which is great. Yeah, mate. And I'm, I'm so glad. I'm sure, you know, everyone out there is, is so stoked to hear that you're doing well. Um, I'll just sort of plug myself a little bit here. For those who don't know, I released a video about a question I got asked of, are you afraid of dying? I've got a disease that, you know, most likely will catch up and kill me. But what Hugo was saying of, you know, living through that and finding happiness in other things. And if anyone wants to watch that or ask any questions about that, feel free to message myself or Hugo. We are both incredibly open people about the diseases that we've had or have been through. And we feel very strongly that the more open we are answering any questions, any queries, even if you think it's embarrassing to ask or if you think it's uncomfortable to ask us, absolutely go for your life because we know the more people understand about this, the more people will get checked or seek treatment or professional help. That being either if it's professional physical health or mental health help, that how brilliant that can actually be. Now, just to sort of wrap up the podcast a bit here, we'll finish on a really, a really happy note as, you know, this has been a very in-depth and well, I won't say a sad, but it is a pretty heavy topic to talk about. Is there something sort of this week that's really made you, made you happy and a, and a positive? Yes, to finish on a happy note or a positive note, the big one would be, mate, is that I've recently just given a presentation in front of about 250 people and really just sharing my story. You can be quite vulnerable, but the positive or happy part about this is that received a few messages since, since really being open and sharing my story about people saying that because of hearing my story or because of you know reading about this and the the importance of early detection they've actually gone and been proactive to to see a doctor and i think that's fantastic and the number the number one happiest part is this wasn't necessarily this week but i'm still going to slip it in here because it's the same theme as when i had a, a mum contact me to say her son had signs of testicular cancer the son had this lump and he went off to get checked and he did actually have testicular cancer but he got in early and didn't require any further treatment. So when you hear these amazing stories of people reaching out to you and realizing that my story is actually helping others, it's truly amazing. And I suppose that's what it's all about. So that's kind of the big happy news for me is really, really receiving those types of uh, messages from people. Yeah, mate. No, I can relate to that massively as well. I get, I get a lot of messages about people sort of messaging me, going, oh, oh, you really helped me with, you know, getting through a hard mental time or to, or have, you know, sort of a, a hard physical or a mental health a battle that, every, that everyone goes through at some point. And those messages, you know, for guys like you and me, that's sort of our whole goal. Although, you know, we don't want to seek any credit for it, but when we get a bit of feedback, it's like, oh, you really helped. Even if it's just one person that potentially, you know, could save their life and it makes it sort of all worth it. Yeah, and that's sort of the end of our, our second instalment of the 25 Stay Alive podcast with myself, Matthew Willie Williams. And Captain Hugo Tuvi and Hughes, I'd just like to say thank you so much for having this really open chat with me. It really, really means a lot. And if you want to close us up and go from there. Yeah, no worries at all. And yeah, thanks. Thanks for spending the time with me for the last, you know, 40 minutes or so. Willie, I I really, uh, really appreciate it. I could yeah, speak to you for hours and, and for everyone listening out there, you know, it's it's never easy opening up my story. However, the reason I do it and the reason Willie does not the reason for this podcast in general is to, to hopefully help the lives 
of other young men and women. Uh, and as I touched on last episode, even to just change your perspective a bit on, on life. So thanks, guys. Yeah. Well, thank you. You've been listening to the 25 Stay Alive podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify to get fresh new weekly episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 25 Stay Alive. And feel free to send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.